With Governor Jane Nixon leaving office soon due to term limits, Missouri Democrats are looking to Attorney General Chris Coster to be their standard bearer for governor. The Democratic statewide official joins us from Hannibal on another edition of Politically Speaking. I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. We sat in front of our televisions and watched with our own eyes a moment that we all knew would one day occur. The Republican Party untethered itself from the planet Earth. <laughs> and they began, they began the slow, sad process of floating away into outer space. That's Missouri Attorney General Chris Coster, the presumptive Democratic gubernatorial nominee at Democrat Days in Hannibal. Hello, and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And my colleague was in Hannibal this weekend for the annual Northeast Missouri Extravaganza. And surprisingly, you were the only reporter from outside Northeast Missouri to be at this event. Is that correct, Joe? Yes, I was surprised and frankly shocked and disappointed. Uh, It used to be, I'm sounding like an old person here again, but... 20 years ago, there would be, you know, at least five, 10 reporters from around the state. This time it was just me, which is nice for us because we have a lot of, um, as a result, exclusive audio from uh, Coster and others. But frankly, this was a significant event. And much of the things that Coster said were things that he has not talked about at length before. And I think it would be important for readers and listeners and viewers around the state to have seen that. So we're doing something a little bit different, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. But what we're doing for this particular podcast is Joe spent a lot of time interviewing Coster on a host of topics, and we want to play a lot of his responses for you because we feel it's important for our listeners to know what gubernatorial candidates are thinking. But before we get into policy, we do want to delve into this big speech at the breakfast of Democrat days. I've been to two Democrat days in 2007 and 2008 when the Democrats had a foothold in Northeast Missouri still. Now it's kind of been a disaster the last few cycles to the point where they don't have any state legislators there anymore. But it seemed that Coster's speech was not only trying to rally the troops, so to speak, but it also was trying to give a sense to Democrats what his political philosophy was. That was my understand from listening. What was your understanding? Yeah, this was his first major speech since officially filing for office. And he spent a lot of time, as have has have his rivals around the state, talking to smaller groups. But this was, I think, the most uh, detailed speech that Coster has given in months. So as our listeners probably know, Coster was a former state senator who was initially a Republican, became a Democrat in 2007, was elected attorney general in 2008 after a really tough primary and a tough general election. He won re-election in 2012, and now he's officially running for governor. And in this clip that Joe got, he kind of lays out some of his philosophical approach that he has taken, I think, over his career and since he switched parties. I was in favor of the tax cuts of 2014, and nobody has pushed back against the EPA harder than I have to protect farm families in this state. 
but a 35% cut in higher education, a 20% cut to our public schools, a refusal to invest in Missouri's health care system, and a failure to consider any realistic plan to save rural roads is evidence that the Republican Party has lost its roadmap to the 21st century. Now, one of the reasons why I find Coster to be such an interesting political character is he does hold some traditional Democratic views on, on major issues, whether it be labor unions, Medicaid, education spending. But on other things, as he kind of alluded to in his speech, like gun rights on environmental issues, as we'll talk about later on campaign finance, he diverts pretty strongly from his party, which I think, in his view, gives him more flexibility to deal with a Republican legislature, essentially. What's kind of your impressions of that, Joe? Yeah, I think it's definitely true. And he still has good relations with some uh, Republicans. And I think he sees that as by he's he's casting himself as a conservative Democrat. And as he said in his speech, but also in the interview I had with him later, he emphasizes that that's sort of an endangered species, not just in Missouri, but in other states. And he's going to try to bring that back. And he contends that as a conservative Democrat, he has more flexibility than conservative Republicans, who he thinks have gone off the rails, and liberal Democrats, who he think are, thinks are just unrealistic. Now, as I mentioned, though, he does hold, I think, the traditional Democratic view on Medicaid expansion. Yes. And for our listeners, Medicaid expansion under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act would basically extend eligibility for the program to 138 percent of the federal poverty level. Um, for the first few years, the federal government was slated to pick up the whole tab. I think Missouri has missed out on that yes. at this point. But if they did sign on to it, I think the federal government would still pay for a vast majority of it. Yes, uh, a minimum of 90 percent. So, so this is what Coster had to say about the Republican failure to expand Medicaid because the Republicans do control both chambers of the legislature. It's the best darn economic development opportunity this state has seen in 25 years. It will create more jobs than the Bombardier proposal of 2006, more jobs than the China Hub proposal of 2010, more jobs than the Boeing deal of 2013. Medicaid expansion will create 40,000 jobs in towns big and small all across this great state. It is supported by the Missouri Chamber of Commerce, one of the most Republican organizations in this state. It is supported by Senator Kit Bond. It is supported by every single health care system in Missouri. And yet, all four Republican candidates say no. It is time to expand health care in Missouri. So, as, as he was alluding to, the four major Republican gubernatorial candidates, Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder, author and Navy SEAL Eric Greitens, uh, former House Speaker and U.S. Attorney Catherine Hannaway, and businessman John Bruner, all oppose Medicaid expansion pretty strongly. Um, Joe, I mean, we both follow the legislature pretty closely. If Coster becomes governor, do you think that he's going to be able to have more influence or, or leeway on this issue than Governor Nixon has? Possibly. Now, it's still an uphill battle, and I think he probably recognizes that because of the strong Republican majorities, but also because Republicans in Missouri have a very philosophical um, objection to 
uh, expanding Medicaid. It's not just finances to them. It's philosophical. They do not believe that government should be so heavily involved in health care. But the number of Republican-led states surrounding us or nearby, including Arkansas, have sort of come up with a way to expand Medicaid, get the federal money, and kind of cast it with a little Republican view of it. And uh, I think Coster may hope that if he uh, aligns himself with the Missouri Chamber and other proponents that perhaps they can persuade the General Assembly to reconsider. Now, one of the other reasons I find Coster to be such an interesting political figure is whether you agree or disagree with his political views or the way he kind of deals with issues, he is one of the better public speakers, I think, in Missouri politics. And from listening to audio of his speech, this particular clip when he talked about dealing with the Ferguson unrest, I think was really striking from an oratorical perspective. Let's kind of play that right now to show you what I'm talking about. A year and a half ago, I was in Ferguson on West Florissant Avenue during the afternoon to speak with shopkeepers and with families, and after dark to listen to protesters. And I heard the same refrain there as well. Do they even see us? Do the people who hold power in Jefferson City, do they see what this violence is doing to our businesses and doing to our families? Do they see what 25% unemployment looks like? Do they see what it's like to live an entire generation on McDonald's wages? Do they see what living with failing schools for decades, since before Brown versus Board of Education, these schools have always been failing. Do they see what is happening here? Do they see what it is like to want health care, to have health care within our grasp, and to have Republicans in Jefferson City tell us, no, you cannot have health care. Why? Because we hate your president. Republicans, let me tell you something. That's not a good enough reason to deny health care to your fellow Missourians. I mean, again, whether you disagree or agree with the substance of that, it's a pretty powerful minute and a half the way he delivered it. I mean, what was kind of your reaction when you saw the speech? Yeah, when I heard the speech, yes. Uh, it was, uh, frankly, even for Coster, uh, who do, who has a good voice, so he can make stuff sound pretty good, even if... Even he if, has a great radio voice. Even the if the content is so-so. In this case, for this speech, which he wrote himself, uh, the uh, uh, content was very strong. Whether one agrees or disagrees, he really laid out his views, and he really launched his attacks pretty strongly. And uh, I think that anyone who is listening got a really good sense of how he plans to approach the next, the rest, the, the next phase of his campaign. So now we're going to do something a little bit different that we haven't done on the podcast before. Uh, after Coster made this speech, Joe uh, spent a good deal amount of time with him, talking with him about a number of key and important issues. Joe, just kind of give a little bit of a backdrop here. Sure. Uh, after the speech, we went into a separate room. We they'd agreed to do so, and we covered a lot of territory. Aside from Ferguson, we talked about tax cuts, uh, campaign finance. The minimum wage, right to work, guns, you name it. 
he talked about and it. we're gonna give our listeners and Missourians his answers because I think that in a gubernatorial campaign I know that a lot of wacky stuff gets put into the discourse but it's a hugely important office and Missouri has a lot of issues it's dealing with right now we've had the other four go- Republican gubernatorial candidates on and we thought this would be a good opportunity for Coster's views to be heard in a little bit more depth so the first question, Joe, I think that you asked was on tax cuts and, and business. Just kind of give a backdrop before we play the clip. Okay. Um, Coster was one of the few Democrats who favored the 2014 tax cuts, which were approved by the General Assembly, vetoed by the governor, but then overridden. Uh, Coster here lays out why he supported him. Missouri is a fundamentally conservative place. It's deep in the d- DNA of this state uh, that this is a low-tax business-friendly regulation, AAA bond-rated state that wants to produce a business-friendly climate. There's just no getting away from that in the DNA of Missourians. And that is true of really most everybody across the broad political spectrum. The the 2014 effort was a, a signal to the country that Missouri intends, I hope, to move into the top 10 business-friendly states uh, in the nation. We're probably, depending on the ranking that you look at, we're probably somewhere between 16th and 25th right now. Uh, but we are doing things that can get us closer and closer to the top 10. Missouri probably is never going to be number one in terms of business-friendly uh, states because there are certain historical tax things that have occurred in Texas and Florida. There's oil and gas revenues that have uh, come to other states that, that don't uh, come to the state of Missouri. So at some point, we probably run up against a barrier that we can't uh, pass through. But what we've seen is that we can make steps to get us into the top 10. And the tax cut of 2014 was one of those um, steps. Now, going forward, I think what is important is to work in a bipartisan fashion to make sure that um, we uh, move cautiously about what steps we take in the future uh, to move us into the top 10. And I think that certain tax cut proposals that are coming out of the Republican ranks uh, for governor right now have not been fully thought out. Um, for example, I think uh, uh, Catherine Hannaway, former Speaker Hannaway, has recommended that we abolish the uh, state income tax. And who wouldn't like to do that if it was, uh, if if we knew how to uh, supplant the $5.5 billion that she wants to eliminate. To put $5.5 billion of pressure on the sales tax would take sales taxes that are at 9, 10, 11, 12 percent in communities all over the state up to 20 percent, 18, 19, 20 percent in, in, in some of the municipalities. And so when Ms. Hannaway, uh, you know, puts this carrot out in, in front of people, she doesn't tell the rest of the story about what has to be done and how it would change our state and whether anybody would want to shop here uh, if we had a 20% sales tax. So I think moving cautiously uh, going forward is going to be critical because we are at a point where uh, we've got to uh, put renewed emphasis on moving resources back into K-12, uh, higher education, Missouri Department of Transportation and the like. Now, another issue that Joe talked about after this was Coster's view on campaign donation limits. 
for our listeners, Koster was one of the few Democrats in 2008 to vote to repeal campaign donation limits. And it's become kind of an issue that a lot of people are talking about now because it's kind of being mixed into the discussion of ethics and overhauling laws involved in that. Um, tell us a little bit more about the questions that you asked, Joe. Yes, I'm, I'm always a big questioner about campaign finance. So I wanted Koster to kind of explain whether or not he regretted his vote or just sort of how he saw things now. And he had a very interesting um, detailed take on it, and we think that people should listen. In 2006, when the limits came off, a $25,000 contribution was, as you recall, as big as it got. Those were eye-popping numbers in 2006. Now that is no longer the case. The big contributions are 100000 500000 We've seen several contributions at a million dollars. And and honestly, I don't even know that a million dollars is, for those who watch the political world on a day-to-day basis, shocks anybody anymore, unfortunately. And it is, I think, concerning to uh, consider um, extrapolating this out another three or four years. I mean, I, I think it's, it's concerning now, uh, particularly when uh, some of this money is coming in from people who not only don't live in the state, but as far as I can tell, have never stepped foot in the state and never intend to step foot in the state. Uh, so the, I think the renewed focus um, on ethics reform and other plans to improve the trust uh, between Missourians and the political uh, world is in order, uh, and it's something that we are looking at on a daily basis. I don't have a uh, these things are in the world of Citizens United, as you know, it's extremely difficult to write a law that is more than window dressing. And ev- there are a lot of us who are looking for a law that is more than window dressing. I don't want to come up with a solution that simply takes a million dollar contribution, which at least now we can see out in the open and is transparent and, and we know about, about it within 48 hours, and push it into the shadows. If all we do is push it into the shadows and then nobody knows about it, but it still comes into the system under the table, I actually think that's worse. So, you know, one of the reasons that I, I hope that the balance of the Supreme Court uh, gets back to a more centrist position is to revisit the Citizens United uh, decision because it is nearly impossible for good-hearted people to come up with a rational campaign system as long as Citizens United is hanging above us. Now, later in your interview, you asked Coster about his advocacy to disclose donors who give to politically active nonprofits. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I did a big story about a year ago on 501c4s, which are growing in importance in Missouri And those are groups that do not have to identify their donors, and increasingly they're spending large amounts on campaigns. And so, and Coster had been interested at the time in requiring disclosure of those donors if the 501c4s were involved in Missouri elections. So I asked him his current views on the matter. In the absence of a uh, campaign finance system that works structurally, transparency is the next best thing. And if there's one good thing about Missouri's uh, campaign structure is it is that it is very very transparent and so if Mr. Singfield or Mr. Humphrey uh, give a million dollar contribution we know about it within 48 hours that's a lot better than not knowing about it and having it you know under the table hide in the weeds whatever you want to say 
So the lack of transparency around 501c4s is, I think, concerning. I think it's inconsistent with how a political system should operate. Uh, sneak attacks, even those who believe that uh, money is speech, I, I think it is hard to uh, advocate or defend the notion that sneak attacks are speech. I mean, at least there's a, a credible back and forth that can uh, occur around the, the legal notion that money is speech. But a sneak attack, uh, sneaking up on somebody from behind and hiding, uh, you know, behind these uh, IRS walls, that doesn't that doesn't strike me as free speech. So just for our listeners, when uh, Coster was referring to Sinkfeld and Humphreys, he was talking about retired financier Rex Sinkfeld, one of the biggest political donors in Missouri, and David Humphreys, probably the second biggest political donor in Missouri. Just for our listeners to know that. Now we we've talked a little bit about how. Uh, Coster kind of diverges from the Democratic Party. But in these next two questions, he kind of gives a more mainline or mainstream view on certain issues that are important to that party. Joe, you asked him about efforts to raise the minimum wage, which I think has become an increasingly big rallying cry for Democrats across the country. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, there have been a number of progressive groups who have been advocating for $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, Republicans discount that. Uh, some aren't in favor of raising the minimum wage at all, which in Missouri is $7.65 an hour. Uh, then Coster is uh, proposing a middle ground, which is uh, in line with some other groups. And so here he's explaining it. I may have been the only, I can't recall, but I may have been the only Republican in 2006 who was in favor of the ballot initiative that went on then. Uh, and you recall that it, it passed by like 71 or 76 percent. Right. Republicans didn't do too well in calling that race. Uh, but I was in favor of lifting up the minimum wage. I still am in favor of lifting up the minimum wage. I Look, I completely understand and empathize with the desire that uh, some in the progressive movement have for the fight for 15. And emotionally, you know, I, I, I sympathize with that. I, I'm not certain. I want to see uh, some data about what Missouri wants, really thinks about this. My instinct is that 1010 is probably more in line with uh, a, a balance that Missourians uh, would uh, agree upon. My sense is that 15 would have a, a difficult time and that that's a bridge too far and it's not, uh, you know, it, it's not a challenge that this business community uh, is ready to take on. Um, and I am also open-minded to the issue of the training wage. Um, and so, again, I want to work across the aisle with Republicans to find an agreement that, that lifts up uh, incomes in the state of Missouri, uh, but in a way that protects business owners. By 1010, uh, Coster is referring to a proposal to raise the minimum wage to $10.10 an hour. The other issue that I think Coster has actually advocated, even when he was a Republican, was his opposition to so-called right to work, which, Joe, I always have you explain what right to work is. Yeah, right to work would bar employers or unions from requiring all workers in a bargaining unit to pay dues or fees if a majority have voted to join a union. Uh Republicans say that this is unfair to individuals. Uh, labor unions and their allies say, no, this basically puts uh, employers, it gives them too much power and the workers too little. And here is what Coster had to say about that issue. Right to work has become essentially an article of faith uh, 
to uh, those who hold either side of the, uh, the position. Thankfully, there are enough Republicans who stand with us um, in pushing off right to work. My personal opinion is that in an age of really historic wage inequality, to come forward with a plan to suggest that by reducing the wages of some Missourians, the lives of other Missourians is going to be better is not really the state that I want to lead. I, I want to lead a state that goes forward together as one. I wouldn't, if somebody came forward with a plan, a great idea to reduce the wages of teachers or journalists or electrical engineers, I would say that doesn't sound like the values that we share. And so I don't want to do it to construction workers either. I appreciate the Attorney General not wanting to lower journalist wages, by the way. But going back to an issue that he diverges from Democrats, we're going to talk a little bit about gun control, because if you look at the presidential candidates on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton and to some extent Bernie Sanders, they tend to depart pretty widely from the National Rifle Association. But Coster has always taken a different view on that issue, even after he switched parties. Is that correct, Joe? Yes. And as a result, he has a top rating from the NRA. So here's what he had to say about his difference of opinion from Democrats on gun control. Missouri is a blue dog state. And when Missouri um, tries to turn itself into a East Coast Democratic state, uh, we suffer in the Missouri legislature. I mean, right now, I, we there are, Democrats hold 25 percent of the seats in the Missouri Senate and 23 percent of the seats in the Missouri House. And 15 years ago, conservative Democrats held the majority in this state. Uh, I hold a different position than Secretary Clinton on the issue, um, and it's understandable. I came up within the Republican family. I uh, I came up in rural law enforcement. Um, I campaigned for right to carry it back in 1999. I, th I think uh, I remember doing television commercials for that issue as a prosecuting attorney uh, in western Missouri. So I didn't change on that issue. I haven't changed on that issue. It is part of the culture of, of the state. And, you know, Secretary Clinton and I don't have to agree on everything. We can be we can respectfully disagree on some issues that face uh, Missouri. Now, before we transition into our next slate of questions, Joe, how do you think Coster's views on guns could help or hurt him going into this gubernatorial campaign? Because I could see some left of center, center Democrats being upset the fact that he opposes gun control, but I could see a lot of, you know, independent and more conservative Democrats in outstate Missouri being sympathetic to that view. What's kind of your thought on that? Well, in Democrat days, one of the helpful things was I talked to a lot of rural Democrats, many of the, not just office holders, but committee chairmen and stuff like that. And they've been suffering greatly in rural Missouri the last 20 years. They have seen their numbers dwindle to virtually nil, uh, largely because of the gun issue. At least that's what I was told repeatedly, because they say that uh, farmers and others are afraid that uh, Democrats are going to go after their guns. Now, Coster has been able to circumvent some of that. He has spent a lot of time with in private meetings and in small public gatherings in rural Missouri talking to them, and many of the questions are about uh, guns. So the general perception I got from talking to people was that he they think that he will do well in rural Missouri, at least on that issue, and 
But there is a question of whether that's going to be a trickle-down effect. Uh, I was hearing a lot that there wasn't going to be a trickle-up effect, that if Hillary Clinton's a nominee or Bernie Sanders, which a lot of these rural people called a, a communist, <laughs> um, they don't see Clinton or Sanders doing well in rural Missouri. And it should just be noted that if you look at maps of Coster's two statewide elections in 2008 and 2012, he did pretty well in rural Missouri compared to some other Democratic statewide contenders. We'll have to see if that translates to his gubernatorial run. So the next four questions that Joe asked were about Ferguson and what Coster plans to do in this post-Ferguson world, which I think is one of the most important issues in this gubernatorial campaign from a philosophical and a practical perspective. And one of the questions that Joe asked Coster was how he would improve race relations, especially in places like St. Louis. Here's what Coster had to say about that. When I am in African-American communities and I talk to opinion leaders who are above the age of, say, 55 and who have some historical knowledge over many uh, gubernatorial administrations. The person that they, I think, uh, remember most fondly is Mel Carnahan, quite honestly. Uh, Mel was a person who knew their names, uh, knew the names of the opinion leaders, the clergy, the neighborhood leaders, the business leaders, uh, who had them to Jefferson City, listened to them, um, and consulted them on issues. Obviously, no group uh, is able to, you know, uh, persuade their way to success every single time. But Mel was remembered as somebody who stayed in touch and who cared and who listened. And so I think that in terms of lowering the temperature between different minority and majority communities in this state, uh, a lot of personal contact, a lot of listening, uh, and trying to live up to Mel's example in that realm is the best path forward. One of the other questions Joe asked Coster was about the Ferguson Commission report. Um, beyond just the general assessment of the report, Joe asked uh, the attorney general what specific things in the report that he was paying particularly close attention to. Here's what he had to say about that. So here are the things that I think I have been working on and will continue to work on. The first is recruitment of more African-Americans and minorities into the policing ranks. Obviously, the, one of the challenges that we had at Ferguson was that you have a community that is 70% African-American and a police department that was 96% white. And those types of disparities add to the tensions that we saw uh, in communities like Ferguson. The only way to solve this problem is to try to do what we can to recruit more uh, young minorities into policing. Uh, I think a lot of us who carry a badge in our back pocket are concerned that 15, 16, 17-year-olds may not view policing with the uh, respect that we want them to view it as and, uh, and that we are uh, trying to foster uh, in all communities. And so I've been going out along with Sam Dotson to African-American high schools in North City and North County every month to speak to school assemblies about law enforcement as a profession, what it pays, what the hours are, how you get the, your education paid for, uh, pension benefits, health care benefits, pre prestige, and, and, uh, and ability to add meaningfully to a community. And those discussions have been going great. I think both Sam Dotson, Chief Dotson, and I have felt that that has been a very positive experience for us. Hopefully it is 
opening some minds. Uh, we feel like the, the meetings are going well, and I will continue that, and frankly would continue it even as governor, because I think it's that important. The, body, uh, the issue of body cameras is also uh, something that I have advocated for. Obviously, you are well aware that uh, we have one disagreement between my, uh, my, my point of view and the, uh, and the press's uh, point of view on the availability, or the easy availability of those uh, videotapes for uh, the 5.30 and uh, the 5 and 6 o'clock news. Um, I would like to make sure that those tapes are utilized for policing and law enforcement uh, benefits. That's an issue that has to be addressed in the legislature. But by and large, I am a, uh, a strong advocate for uh, body cameras. We also want to see the use of force uh, law updated to uh, coincide with Tennessee versus Garner. We tried to get it done last year. It almost got done, but then it, uh, it failed at, at the last juncture. Uh, there are some updates to the traffic stops report, the uniform uh, traffic stops report that we produce every year. Um, and then there are some broader issues that we have been uh, obviously favorable to. I talked this morning about expansion of health care. That is one of the issues in the report and raising the minimum wage. I'd like to see uh, the minimum wage increase uh, appropriately uh, in the state of Missouri. Now, one of the things that Coster has done in his statewide campaigns, and I would assume his state Senate campaigns, is he's often touted himself as a crime fighter. And he also got many supportive groups from within the law enforcement community on his side for attorney general, whether it be the Fraternal Order of Police or any other organization. And Joe asked the attorney general whether his support among law enforcement groups was going to inhibit in any way his ability to push policy uh, post-Ferguson. Is that correct, Joe? Yes. And here's what he had to say about that. I don't think so. I, I think that, for example, on the body camera issue, the, uh, the intermediate issue about what these videotapes are used for, whether the media can uh, take over, take a, a video from a, a DWI stop and put it on the 5 o'clock news and the 6 o'clock news. Police simply don't want to be uh, stringers or runners, front men, uh, for what is increasingly a, uh, an infotainment media. And quite honestly, I 100% agree with them. So before we can get to body cameras, we're going to make certain that the concerns of law enforcement are addressed. Uh, throughout my career, I have been a strong supporter of uh, the men and women in blue, the men and women in the deputy sheriff's offices, and we have protected them on work comp issues. I've protected them on salary issues, making sure that their salaries were appropriate and increasing, and that kind of absolute loyalty uh, to law enforcement has been a, a hallmark of my professional life for 20 years. The final question that we want to delve into in this Ferguson-related series of queries is whether the attorney general would have done anything differently during the unrest. Joe, you and I both know that one of the biggest criticisms of the current governor is his handling of the Ferguson unrest. Yes. Uh, Coster, to be fair, Coster was out in Ferguson within a few days after it happened. It's just that he didn't tell reporters. So one of the reasons he found out about it was that there were pictures starting to circulate of Coster uh, talking to groups. He says he was trying to talk to the groups and not become a media spectacle. But it is interesting, his take on all this. And here it is. I think that if we review the history, the, the, 
mistake was, uh, I think it would have been better if the governor had been there on day one. Um, what is, I think, underappreciated is the security concerns that the Highway Patrol was communicating to uh, the second floor, to the governor's office, um, that were serious. And, uh, and so the decision that was made on day one and, uh, and day two um, is understandable, but I think in retrospect, uh, the, what the Joplin crisis, what the Ferguson crisis um, certainly highlighted was that the chief executive must be there immediately and must be there in person. And the, I think the security concerns that the uh, that Governor Nixon um, perhaps yielded to that were raised uh, by the Highway Patrol would be something I would uh, uh, advise go in a different direction. So now we've gotten the issues out of the way. We want to get into the politically part of politically speaking, which is a joke I've been making for years that's still not funny. Part of the questions that you asked were about how Republicans are perceiving Coster's candidacy. Yes. And also I asked him, you know, just about the whole Democratic climate, especially in rural Missouri. So here's what he had to say about the fact that he has been become the chief target of Republicans in Missouri. Well, the, I think the Republicans um, are going to probably say a lot of negative things about me in the next uh, eight, nine months. But you only have to go back seven years, eight years now, and they had elected me as their leader in the Senate. Uh, I was elected as leader of the Republican caucus in the Missouri Senate 10 months after I entered, and I held that position until the, the day I resigned, left the majority party, and went to the minority party. So. I understand that in the back and forth tussle of uh, you know elections, things are going to be said. But the fact remains that at one point, not too very long ago, they had elected me leader. Um, you know, I think that the the issue around you know, I define myself as a conservative Democrat. Um, I think I was generally seen as a progressive Republican in the Senate. You covered me there. Um, and I think that as a conservative Democrat that puts a lot of emphasis and has worked with Republicans across the aisle to create a business-friendly environment in our state to, to draw in jobs and who will continue to work on these common goals with Republicans to put Missouri into a top 10 business-friendly state in the, in the nation, so we're uh, ranked by national publications in that way. Uh, is something that underlines and is foundational in my candidacy. But after those business issues and those fiscally conservative issues, we get back to issues like fully funding public schools and standing up for health care and, and coming up with a rational plan for transportation. And a lot of things that Republicans are trapped in this very difficult decision-making machine that won't let them stand on their own two feet. It, it, what, what the Donald Trump situation uh, has shown is that, you know, good people, we may not, we may not uh, agree with them on every point, but everyone acknowledges that men like, you know, John Kasich and Jeb Bush are good quality public servants who bring a Republican point of view to the table, but they are no longer even qualified to fit within this Republican decision-making machine. They are out. Well, that's not the way the majority of Missourians feel. The majority of Missourians want to, to you know, keep our promise to schools, keep our promise to health care. And I think once they understand that there is a Democrat 
who is not going to raise their taxes, not going to take their guns, uh, but then gets back to the business of making a state work functionally, uh, they will continue to support and lift up this option that we're putting on the table. And in our final clip today, Coster talks about how the Democrats appear to be at a low point in the Missouri legislature and what that means for the rest of the state. I don't think it's good for the state, obviously, to have such an imbalance in the legislature because it's creating unbalanced decision making, in my opinion. And so I would hope to work on recruiting outstate candidates that reflect the values of uh, rural Missouri and agriculture and the Second Amendment, and frankly, uh, life as well. I mean, this is not a single issue party. And uh, I think that it is, it's disturbing when any party becomes a single issue party. We call ourselves as Democrats the Big Tent Party, and I think that we should live up to the moniker that we place on ourselves. So we've just heard from the attorney general on a multitude of issues. It, it's a lot to digest. Joe, what do you kind of what do you kind of make of what from talking to him? Yes, I think he was he was extremely thoughtful, regardless of whether one agrees or disagrees. Uh, listeners can are free to look on our politically speaking website for the podcast of all the Republican uh, contenders for governor. And if you compare, listen to all of them, you do get a sense of where everybody's coming from, and that's our whole aim is to provide information. Information with with a little bit of uh, funniness every now and then. <laughs> I, failed funniness. Failed funniness. <laughs> well, I would like to thank uh, the Attorney General for talking with my colleague here. I think it's important for people to get on the record about issues. And he, he did talk about his philosophy and his opinions on specific issues. And we appreciate his time as always. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And although the Attorney General is not here in the studio, you can follow him on Twitter at Coster, the number four, Missouri. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. So long.